Section 1 of Meet Mr. Mulliner by P.G. Woodhouse. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by James Hutchison. Meet Mr. Mulliner. Section 1. The Truth About George. Two men were sitting in the bar parlor of the Angler's Rest as I entered it, and one of them, I gathered from his low, excited voice and wide gestures, was telling the other a story. I could hear nothing but an occasional, biggest I ever saw in my life, and fully as large as that. But in such a place, it was not difficult to imagine the rest. And when the second man, catching my eye, winked at me with a sort of humorous misery, I smiled sympathetically back at him. The action had the effect of establishing a bond between us. And when the storyteller finished his tale and left, he came over to my table as if answering a formal invitation. Dreadful liars some men are, he said genially. Fishermen, I suggested, are traditionally careless of the truth. He wasn't a fisherman, said my companion. That was our local doctor. He was telling me about his latest case of dropsy. Besides, he tapped me earnestly on the knee, you must not fall into the popular error about fishermen. Tradition has maligned them. I'm a fisherman myself, and I've never told a lie in my life. I could well believe it. He was a short, stout, comfortable man of middle age, and the thing that struck me first about him was the extraordinary childlike candor of his eyes. They were large and round and honest. I would have bought oil stock from him without a tremor. The door leading into the white, dusty road opened, and a small man with a rimless pince-nez and an anxious expression shot in like a rabbit and consumed a gin and ginger beer almost before we knew he was there. Having thus refreshed himself, he stood looking at us, seemingly ill at ease. Mm, he said. We looked at him inquiringly. Nice His nerve appeared to fail him, and he vanished as abruptly as he had come. I think he was leading up to telling us it was a nice day, hazarded my companion. It must be very embarrassing, I said, for a man with such a painful impediment in his speech to open conversation with strangers. Probably trying to cure himself, like my nephew George. Have I ever told you about my nephew, George? I reminded him that we had only just met, and that this was the first time I had learned that he had a nephew, George. Young George Mulliner. My name is Mulliner. I will tell you about George's case. In many ways, a rather remarkable one. My nephew, George, said Mr. Mulliner, was as nice a young fellow as you would ever wish to meet. But from childhood up, he had been cursed with a terrible stammer. If he had had to earn his living, he would undoubtedly have found this affliction a great handicap. But fortunately, his father had left him a comfortable income, and George spent a not unhappy life residing in the village where he had been born, and passing his days in the usual country sports, and his evenings in doing crossword puzzles. By the time he was thirty, he knew more about Eli, the prophet, Ra, the sun god, and the bird Emu, than anybody else in the county except Susan Blake, the vicar's daughter, 
who had also taken up the solving of crossword puzzles, and was the first girl in Worcestershire to find out the meaning of styrene and crepuscular. It was his association with Miss Blake that first turned George's thoughts to a serious endeavor to cure himself of his stammer. Naturally, with this hobby in common, the young people saw a great deal of one another, for George was always looking in at the vicarage to ask her if she knew a word of seven letters meaning appertaining to the profession of plumbing. And Susan was just as constant a caller at George's cozy little cottage, being frequently stumped, as girls will be, by words of eight letters signifying largely used in the manufacture of poppet valves. The consequence was that one evening, just after she had helped him out of a tight place with the word disestablishmentarianism, the boy suddenly awoke to the truth and realized that she was all the world to him, or, as he put it to himself from force of habit, precious, beloved, darling, much loved, highly esteemed, or valued. And yet, every time he tried to tell her so, he could get no further than a sibilant gurgle, which was no more practical use than a hiccup. Something obviously had to be done, and George went to London to see a specialist. Yes, said the specialist. Aye, said George. You were saying, woo, 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 Sing it, said the specialist. S, said George, puzzled. The specialist explained. He was a kindly man with moth-eaten whiskers and an eye like a meditative codfish. Many people, he said, who are unable to articulate clearly in ordinary speech find themselves lucid and bell-like when they burst into song. It seemed a good idea to George. He thought for a moment, then threw his head back, shut his eyes, and let it go in a musical baritone. I love a lassie, a bonny, bonny lassie, sang George. She's as pure as the lily in the dell. No doubt, said the specialist, wincing a little. She's as sweet as the heather, the bonny purple heather. Susan, my Worcestershire bluebell. Ah, said the specialist. Sounds like a nice girl. Is this she? he asked, adjusting his glasses and peering at the photograph which George had extracted from the interior of the left side of his undervest. George nodded and drew in breath. Yes, sir, he curled. That's my baby. No, sir, don't mean maybe. Yes, sir, that's my baby now. And by the way, when I meet that preacher, I shall say, yes, sir, that's my... Quite, said the specialist hurriedly. He had a sensitive ear. Quite, quite. If you knew Susie like I know Susie... George was beginning, but the other stopped him. Quite, exactly, I shouldn't wonder. Uh, now, said the specialist, what precisely is the trouble? No, no, he added hastily as George inflated his lungs. Don't sing it. Uh, write the particulars on this piece of paper. George did so. Hmm, said the specialist, examining the screed. You wish to woo, court, and become betrothed, engaged, affianced to this girl, but you find yourself unable, incapable, incompetent, impotent, and powerless. 
Every time you attempt it, your vocal cords fail, fall short, are insufficient, wanting, deficient, and go bluey. George nodded. But not unusual case. I've had to deal with this sort of thing before. The effect of love on the vocal cords of even a normally eloquent subject is frequently deleterious. As regards the habitual stammer, tests have shown that in 97.569 recurring of cases, the divine passion reduces him to a condition where he sounds like a soda water siphon trying to recite Gunga Dean. There's only one cure. asked George. I will tell you, stammering, proceeded the specialist, putting the tips of his fingers together and eyeing George benevolently, is mainly mental and is caused by shyness, which is caused by the inferiority complex, which in its turn is caused by suppressed desires or introverted inhibitions or something. The advice I give to all young men who come in here behaving like soda water siphons is to go out and make a point of speaking to at least three perfect strangers every day. Engage these strangers in conversation, persevering no matter how priceless a chump you may feel, and before many weeks are out, you will find that that little daily dose has had its effect. Shyness will wear off, and with it, the stammer. And having requested the young man in a voice of the clearest timber, free from all trace of impediment, to hand over a fee of five guineas, the specialist sent George out into the world. The more George thought about the advice he had been given, the less he liked it. He shivered in the cab that took him to the station to catch the train back to East Wobsley. Like all shy young men, he had never hitherto looked upon himself as shy, preferring to attribute his distaste for the society of his fellows, to some subtle rareness of the soul. But now that the thing had been put squarely up to him, he was compelled to realize that, in all essentials, he was a perfect rabbit. The thought of accosting perfect strangers and forcing his conversation upon them sickened him. But no Mulliner has ever shirked an unpleasant duty. As he reached the platform and strode along it to the train, his teeth were set, his eyes shone with an almost fanatical light of determination, and he intended, before his journey was over, to conduct three heart-to-heart -heart chats, if he had to sing every bar of them. The compartment into which he had made his way was empty at the moment, but just before the train started, a very large, fierce-looking man got in. George would have preferred somebody a little less formidable for his first subject, but he braced himself and bent forward. And as he did so, the man spoke. The w w weather, he said, s s seems to be taking a t t t turn for the better, doesn't it? George sank back as if he had been hit between the eyes. The train had moved out of the dimness of the station by now, and the sun was shining brightly on the speaker, illuminating his knobbly shoulders, his craggy jaw, and, above all, the shockingly choleric look in his eyes. The reply, yes, to such a man, would obviously be madness. But to abstain from speech did not seem to be much better as a policy. 
George's silence appeared to arouse this man's worst passions. His face had turned purple, and he glared painfully. Uh, I, I uh, asked you a civil he said irascibly. Are you d d deaf? All we Mulliners have been noted for our presence of mind. To open his mouth, point to his tonsils, and utter a strangled gurgle was with George the work of a moment. The tension relaxed. The man's annoyance abated. D -d -d Dumb, he said commiseratingly. I beg your... P -p 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 I trust I have not caused you it must not to be able to speak fluently he then buried himself in his paper and george sank back in his corner quivering in every limb to get to east wapsley as you doubtless know you have to change at ippleton and take the branch line by the time the train reached this junction George's composure was somewhat restored. He deposited his belongings in a compartment of the East Wobsley train, which was waiting in a glued manner on the other side of the platform, and, finding that it would not start for some ten minutes, decided to pass the time by strolling up and down in the pleasant air. It was a lovely afternoon. The sun was gilding the platform with its rays, and a gentle breeze blew from the west. A little brook ran tinkling at the side of the road. Birds were singing in the hedgerows, and through the trees could be discerned dimly the noble façade of the county lunatic asylum. Soothed by his surroundings, George began to feel so refreshed that he regretted that in this wayside station there was no one present whom he could engage in talk. It was at this moment that the distinguished-looking stranger entered the platform. The newcomer was a man of imposing physique, simply dressed in pajamas, brown boots, and a Macintosh. In his hand he carried a top hat, and into this he was dipping his fingers, taking them out, and then waving them in a curious manner to right and left. He nodded so affably to George that the latter, though a little surprised at the other's costume, decided to speak. After all, he reflected, clothes do not make the man, and judging from the other's smile, a warm heart appeared to beat beneath that orange and mauve striped pajama jacket. N -n nice weather, he said. Glad you like it, said the stranger. I ordered it specially. George was a little puzzled by this remark, but he persevered. Might I ask what you are d doing? Doing? With that hat. Oh, with this hat. I see what you mean. Just scattering largesse to the multitude, replied the stranger, dipping his fingers once more and waving them with a generous gesture. Devil of a bore, but it's expected of a man in my position. The fact is, he said, linking his arm in George's and speaking in a confidential undertone, I'm the emperor of Abyssinia. That's my palace over there he said, pointing through the trees. Don't let it go any further. It's, it's not supposed to be generally known. It was with a rather sickly smile that George now endeavored to withdraw his arm from that of his companion, but the other would have none of this aloofness. He seemed to be in complete agreement with Shakespeare's dictum 
that a friend, when found, should be grappled to you with hooks of steel. He held George in a vice-like grip and drew him into a recess of the platform. He looked about him and seemed satisfied. We are alone at last, he said. This fact had already impressed itself with sickening clearness on the young man. There are few spots in the civilized world more deserted than the platform of a small country station. The sun shone on the smooth asphalt, on the gleaming rails, and on the machine, which, in exchange for a penny placed in the slot marked matches, would supply a package of wholesome butterscotch, but on nothing else. What George could have done with at that moment was a posse of police armed with stout clubs, and there wasn't even a dog in sight. I've been wanting to talk to you for a long time, said the stranger genially. <laughs> Have you? said George. Yes, I want your opinion of human sacrifices. George said he didn't like them. Why not? asked the other, surprised. George said it was hard to explain. He just didn't. Well, I think you're wrong, said the emperor. I know there's a school of thought growing up that holds your views, but I disapprove of it. I hate all this modern, advanced thought. Human sacrifices have always been good enough for the emperors of Abyssinia, and they're good enough for me. Kindly step in here, if you please. He indicated the lamp and mop room at which they had now arrived. It was a dark and sinister apartment, smelling strongly of oil and porters, and was probably the last place on earth in which George would have wished to be closeted with a man of such peculiar views. He shrank back. You go in first, he said. No larks, the other said, suspiciously. Larks? Yeah, no pushing a fellow in and locking the door and squirting water at him through the window. I've had that happen to me before. C certainly not. Right said the emperor. You're a gentleman and I'm a gentleman, both gentlemen. Have you a knife, by the way? We shall need a knife. No, no knife. Ah, oh, well, said the emperor. We'll have to look about for something else then. No doubt we shall manage somehow. And with the debonair manner which so became him, he scattered another handful of largesse and walked into the lamp room. It was not the fact that he had given his word as a gentleman that kept George from locking the door. There is probably no family on earth more nicely scrupulous as regards keeping its promises than the Mulliners. But I am compelled to admit that had George been able to find the key, he would have locked that door without hesitation. Not being able to find the key, he had to be satisfied with banging it. This done, he leaped back and raced away down the platform. A confused noise within seemed to indicate that the emperor had become involved with some lamps. George made the best of the respite. Covering the ground at a high rate of speed, he flung himself into the train and took refuge under the seat. There he remained, quaking. At one time he thought that his uncongenial acquaintance had gotten up upon the track, for the door of the compartment opened and a cool wind blew in on him. Then, Glancing along the floor, he perceived feminine ankles. The relief was enormous. But even in his relief, George, who was the soul of modesty, did not forget his manners. He closed his eyes.
A voice spoke. Porter? Yes, ma'am. What was all that disturbance as I came into the station? Patient escaped from the asylum, ma'am. Good gracious! The voice would undoubtedly have spoken further, but at this moment the train began to move. There came the sound of a body descending upon a cushioned seat, and some little time later the rustling of a paper. The train gathered speed and jolted on. George had never before traveled under the seat of a railway carriage, and though he belonged to the younger generation, which is supposed to be so avid of new experiences, he had no desire to do so now. He decided to emerge, and, if possible, to emerge with the minimum of ostentation. Little as he knew of women, he was aware that, as a sex, they are apt to be startled by the sight of men crawling out from under the seats of apartments. He began his maneuvers by poking out his head and surveying the train. All was well. The woman, in her seat across the way, was engrossed in her paper. Moving in a series of noiseless wriggles, George extracted himself from his hiding place, and with a twist which would have been impossible to a man not in the habit of doing Swedish exercises daily before breakfast, heaved himself into the corner seat. The woman continued reading her paper. The events of the past quarter of an hour had tended rather to drive from George's mind the mission which he had undertaken on leaving the specialist's office. But now, having leisure for reflection, he realized that, if he meant to complete his first day of the cure, he was allowing himself to run sadly behind schedule. Speak to three strangers, the specialist had told him, and up to the present he had only spoken to one. True, this one had been a pretty considerable stranger, and a less conscientious young man than George Mulliner might have considered himself justified in chalking him up on the scoreboard as a, a one-and-a-half, or even a two. But George had the dogged, honest Mulliner streak in him, and he refused to quibble. He nerved himself for action and cleared his throat. <clears throat> said George. And, having opened the ball, he smiled a winning smile and waited for his companion to make the next move. The move which his companion made was in an upwards direction and measured from six to eight inches. She dropped her paper and regarded George with a pale-eyed horror. One pictures her a little in the position of Robinson Crusoe when he saw the footprint in the sand. She had been convinced that she was completely alone, and lo, out of space, a voice had spoken to her. Her face worked, but she made no remark. George, on his side, was also feeling a little ill at ease. Women always increased his natural shyness. He never knew what to say to them. Then a happy thought struck him. He had just glanced at his watch and found the hour to be nearly 4.30. Women, he knew, loved a drop of tea at about this time, and fortunately there was in his suitcase a full thermos flask. Pardon me, but I wonder if you would care for a cup of tea, was what he wanted to say, but as so often happened with him when in the presence of the opposite sex, he could get no further than a sort of sizzling sound like a cockroach calling to its young. The woman continued to stare at him. Her eyes were now about the size of regulation standard golf balls, and her breathing suggested the last stages of asthma. And it was at this point that George, struggling for speech, had one of those inspirations which frequently come to Mulliners. 
There flashed into his mind what the specialist had told him about singing. Say it with music. That was the thing to do. He delayed no longer. Tea for two, and two for tea, and me for you, and you for me. He was shocked to observe his companion turning Nile green. He decided to make his meaning clearer. I have a thermos. I have a full thermos. Won't you share my thermos, too? When skies are gray, and you feel you are blue, Tea sends the sun smiling through. I have a nice thermos. I have a full thermos. May I pour out some for you? You will agree with me, I think, that no invitation could have been more happily put. But his companion was not responsive. With one last agonized look at him, she closed her eyes and sank back in her seat. Her lips had now turned a curious gray-blue color, and they were moving feebly. She reminded George, who, like myself, was a keen fisherman, of a newly gaffed salmon. George sat back in his corner, brooding. Rack his brain as he might, he could think of no topic which could be guaranteed to interest, elevate, and amuse. He looked out of the window with a sigh. The train was now approaching the dear old familiar East Wobsley country. He began to recognize landmarks. A wave of sentiment poured over George as he thought of Susan, and he reached for the bag of buns which he had bought at the refreshment room at Ippleton. Sentiment always made him hungry. He took his thermos out of the suitcase, and unscrewing the top, poured himself out a cup of tea. Then, placing the thermos on the seat, he drank. He looked across at his companion. Her eyes were still closed, and she uttered little sighing noises. George was half inclined to renew his offer of tea, but the only tune he could remember was Hard-Hearted Hannah the Vamp from Savannah, and it was difficult to fit suitable words to it. He ate his bun and gazed out at the familiar scenery. Now, as you approach East Wapsley, the train, I must mention, has to pass over some points. And so violent is the sudden jerking that strong men have been known to spill their beer. George, forgetting this in his preoccupation, had placed the thermos only a few inches from the edge of the seat. The result was that, as the train reached the points, the flask leaped like a live thing, dived to the floor, and exploded. Even George was distinctly upset by the sudden sharpness of the report. His bun sprang from his hand and was dashed to fragments. He blinked thrice in rapid succession. His heart tried to jump out of his mouth and loosened a front tooth. But on the woman, opposite the effect of the untoward occurrence was still more marked. With a single piercing shriek, she rose from her seat, straight into the air like a rocketing pheasant, and having clutched the communication cord, fell back again. Impressive as her previous leap had been, she excelled it now by several inches. I do not know what the existing record for the sitting high jump is, but she undoubtedly lowered it, and if George had been a member of the Olympic Games Selection Committee, he would have signed up this woman immediately. It's a curious thing that, in spite of the railway company's sporting willingness to let their patrons have a tug at a 
extremely moderate price of five pounds ago, very few people have either pulled a communication cord or seen one pulled. There is thus a widespread ignorance as to what precisely happens on such occasions. The procedure, George tells me, is as follows. First there comes a grinding noise as the brakes are applied. Then the train stops. And finally, from every point of the compass, a seething mob of interested onlookers begins to appear. It was about a half a mile from East Wobsley that the affair had taken place, and as far as the eye could reach, the countryside was totally devoid of humanity. A moment before, nothing had been visible but smiling cornfields and broad pasture lands, but now, from east, west, north, and south, running figures began to appear. We must remember that George at the time was in a somewhat overwrought frame of mind, and his statements should therefore be accepted with caution. But he tells me that out of the middle of a single empty meadow, entirely devoid of cover, no fewer than 27 distinct rustics suddenly appeared, having undoubtedly shot up through the ground. The rails, which had been completely unoccupied, were now thronged with so dense a card of navvies that it seemed to George absurd to pretend that there was any unemployment in England. Every member of the laboring classes throughout the country was so palpably present. Moreover, the train, which at Ippleton had seemed sparsely occupied, was disgorging passengers from every door. It was the sort of mob scene which would have made David W. Griffith stream with delight. And it looked, George says, like guest night at the Royal Automobile Club. But, as I say, we must remember, he was overwrought. It is difficult to say what precisely would have been the correct behavior of your polished man of the world in such a situation. I think myself that a great deal of sang-froid and address would be required even by the most self-possessed in order to pass off such a contretemps. To George, I may say at once, the crisis revealed itself immediately as one which he was totally incapable of handling. The one clear thought that stood out from the welter of his emotions was the reflection that it was advisable to remove himself and to do so without delay. Drawing a deep breath, he shot swiftly off the mark. All we Mulliners have been athletes, and George, when at university, had been noted for his speed of foot. He now ran as he had never run before. His statement, however, that as he sprinted across the first field, he distinctly saw a rabbit shoot an envious glance at him as he passed and shrug its shoulders hopelessly, I am inclined to discount. George, as I have said before, was a little overexcited. Nevertheless, it is not to be questioned that he made good going. And he had to, for after the first instant of surprise, which had enabled him to secure a lead, the whole mob was pouring across country after him, and dimly as he ran, he could hear voices in the throng informally discussing the advisability of lynching him. Moreover, the field through which he was running, a moment before a bare expanse of green, was now black with figures, headed by a man with a beard who carried a pitchfork. George swerved sharply to the right, casting a swift glance over his shoulder at his pursuers. He disliked them all, but especially the man with the pitchfork. It is impossible for one who was not an eyewitness to say how long the chase continued and how much ground was covered by the interested parties. 
I know the East Wapsley country well, and I have checked George's statements. And if it is true that he traveled east as far as Little Wigmarsh in the Dell, and as far west as Hickleford come Warhlberry beneath the hill, he must undoubtedly have done a lot of running. But a point which must not be forgotten is that to a man not in a condition to observe closely, the village of Higgleford come Walterberry beneath the hill might easily not have been Higgleford come Walterberry beneath the hill at all, but another hamlet, which in many respects closely resembles it. I need scarcely say that I allude to Lesser Snodsbury in the Vale. Let us assume, therefore, that George, having touched Little Wigmarsh in the Dell, shot off at a tangent and reached Lesser Snodsbury in the Vale. This would be a considerable run. And as he remembers flitting past Farmer Higgins's pigsty and the dog and duck at Pondlebury Parva, and splashing through the brook Whipple at the point where it joins the river Wapple, we can safely assume that wherever else he went, he got plenty of exercise. But the pleasantest of functions must end, and just as the setting sun was gilding the spire of the ivy-covered church of St. Barnabas the Resilient, where George as a child had sat so often, enlivening the tedium of the sermon by making faces at the choir boys, a damp and bedraggled figure might have been observed crawling painfully across the high street of East Wobsley in the direction of the cozy little cottage known to its builder as Chatsworth and to the village tradesmen as Mulliners. It was George, home from the hunting field. Slowly, George Mulliner made his way to the familiar door, and passing through it, flung himself into his favorite chair. But a moment later, a more imperious need than the desire to rest forced itself upon his attention. Rising stiffly, he tottered to the kitchen and mixed himself a revivifying whiskey and soda. Then, refilling his glass, he returned to the sitting room to find that it was no longer empty. A slim, fair girl tastefully attired in tailor-made tweeds, was leaning over the desk on which he kept his dictionary of English synonyms. She looked up as he entered, startled. "'Why, Mr. Mulliner!' she exclaimed. "'What has been happening? Your clothes are torn, rent, ragged, tattered, and your hair is all disheveled, untrimmed, hanging looser negligently at loose ends.' George smiled a wan smile. You are right, he said, and what is more, I am suffering from extreme fatigue, weariness, lassitude, exhaustion, prostration, and languor. The girl gazed at him, a divine pity in her soft eyes. I'm so sorry, she murmured. So very sorry, grieved, distressed, afflicted, pained, mortified, dejected, and upset. George took her hand. Her sweet sympathy had effected the cure for which he had been seeking so long. Coming on top of the violent emotions through which he had been passing all day, it seemed to work on him like some healing spell, charm, or incantation. Suddenly, in a flash, he realized that he was no longer a stammerer. Had he wished at that moment to say, Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers, he could have done it without a second thought. But he had better things to say than that. Miss Blake, Susan, Susie. He took her other hand in his. 
His voice rang out clear and unimpeded. It seemed to him incredible that he had ever yammered at this girl like an overheated steam radiator. It cannot have escaped your notice that I have long entertained towards you sentiments warmer and deeper than those of ordinary friendship. It is love, Susan, that has been animating my bosom. Love. First a tiny seed is burgeoned in my heart, till blazing into flame it is swept away on the crest of its wave my diffidence, my doubt, my fears, and my foreboding, and now, like the topmost topaz of some ancient tower, it cries to all the world in a voice of thunder, You are mine, my mate, predestined to me since time first began. As the star guides the mariner, when battered by boiling billows, he hies him home to the haven of hope and happiness, so do you gleam upon me along life's rough road and seem to say, Have courage, George, I am here. Susan, I am not an eloquent man. I cannot speak as fluently as I would wish. But these simple words which you have just heard come from my heart, from the unspotted heart of an English gentleman. Susan, I love you. Will you be my wife, married woman, matron, spouse, helpmeet, consort, partner, or better half? Oh, George, said Susan. Yes, yay, I, I, decidedly, unquestionably, indisputably, incontrovertibly, and past all dispute. He folded her in his arms. And as he did so, there came from the street outside, faintly as from a distance, the sound of feet and voices. George leaped to the window. Rounding the corner, just by the Cowan Wheelbarrow public house, licensed to sell ales, wines, and spirits, was the man with the pitchfork, and behind him followed a vast crowd. My darling, said George, for purely personal and private reasons, into which I need not enter, I must now leave you. Will you join me later? I will follow you to the ends of the earth, replied Susan passionately. It will not be necessary, said George. I'm only going down to the coal cellar. I shall spend the next half hour or so there. If anybody calls and asks for me, perhaps you would not mind telling them that I am out. I will, I will, said Susan. And George, by the way, what I really came here for was to ask you if you knew a hyphenated word of nine letters, ending in K, and signifying an implement employed in the pursuit of agriculture. Pitchfork, sweetheart, said George. But you may take it from me as one who knows that agriculture isn't the only thing it is used in pursuit of. And since that day, concluded Mr. Mulliner, George, believe me or believe me not, has not had the slightest trace of an impediment in his speech. He is now the chosen orator at all political rallies for miles around, and so offensively self-confident has his manner become that only last Friday he had his eye blacked by a haycorn and feed merchant of the name of Stubbs. It just shows you, doesn't it? End of section one. Section 2 of Meet Mr. Mulliner, 
by P.G. Woodhouse. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Meet Mr. Mulliner. Read by James Hutchison. Section 2. A Slice of Life. The conversation in the bar parlor of the Angler's Rest had drifted around to the subject of the arts, and somebody asked if that film serial, The Vicissitudes of Vera, which they were showing down at the Bijou Dream, was worth seeing. It's very good, said Miss Postlethwaite, our courteous and efficient barmaid, who is a prominent first-nighter. It's about this mad professor who gets this girl into his toils and tries to turn her into a lobster. Tries to turn her into a lobster? echoed we, surprised. Yes, sir, into a lobster. It seems he collected thousands and thousands of lobsters and mashed them up and boiled down the juice from their glands and was just going to inject it into this Vera Dalrymple's spinal column when Jack Frobisher broke into the house and stopped him. Why did he do that? Because he didn't want the girl he loved to be turned into a lobster. What we mean, said we, is why did the professor want to turn the girl into a lobster? He had a grudge against her. This seemed plausible, and we thought it over for a while. Then one of the company shook his head disapprovingly. I don't like stories like that, he said. They aren't true to life. Pardon me, sir, said a voice, and we were aware of Mr. Mulliner in our midst. Excuse me interrupting what may be a private discussion, said Mr. Mulliner, but I chanced to overhear the recent remarks, and you, sir, have opened up a subject on which I happen to hold strong views, to wit, the question of what is and what is not true to life. How can we, with our limited experience, answer that question? For all we know, at this very moment, Hundreds of young women all over the country may be in the process of being turned into lobsters. Forgive my warmth, but I have suffered a good deal from the skeptical attitude of mind, which is so prevalent nowadays. I have even met people who refused to believe my story about my brother Wilford, purely because it was a little out of the ordinary run of the average man's experience. Considerably moved, Mr. Mulliner ordered a hot scotch with a slice of lemon. What happened to your brother, Wilford? Was he turned into a lobster? No, said Mr. Mulliner, fixing his honest blue eyes on the speaker. He was not. It would be perfectly easy for me to pretend that he was turned into a lobster, but I have always made it a practice, and I always shall make it a practice, to speak nothing but the bare truth. My brother, Wilford, simply had a rather curious adventure. My brother Wilford, said Mr. Mulliner, is the clever one of the family. Even as a boy, he was always messing about with chemicals, and at the university he devoted his time entirely to research. The result was that, while still a young man, he had won an established reputation as the inventor of what are known to the trade as Mulliner's Magic Marvels, a general term embracing the, the Raven Gypsy face cream, the snow of Mountain's lotion, and many other preparations, some designed exclusively for the toilet, others of a curative nature, intended to alleviate the many ills to which the flesh is heir. 
Naturally, he was a very busy man, and it is to this absorption in his work that I attribute the fact that, though, like all Mulliners, a man of striking personal charm, he had reached his 31st year without ever having been involved in an affair of the heart. I remember him telling me once that he simply had no time for girls. But we all fall sooner or later, and these strong, concentrated men harder than any. While taking a brief holiday, one year at Cannes, he met a Miss Angela Perdue, who was staying at his hotel, and she bowled him over completely. She was one of these jolly outdoor girls, and Wilford had told me that what first attracted him about her was her wholesome sunburned complexion. In fact, he told Miss Perdue the same thing, when, shortly after he had proposed and been accepted, she asked him in her girlish way, what it was that had first made him begin to love her. It's such a pity, said Miss Perdue, that the sunburn fades so soon. I do wish I knew some way of keeping it. Even in his moments of holiest emotion, Wilford never forgot that he was a businessman. You should try Mulliner's Raven Gypsy Cream, he said. It comes in two sizes, the small or half-crown jar and the large jar at seven shillings and sixpence. The large jar contains three and a half times as much as the small jar. It's applied nightly with a small sponge before retiring to rest. Testimonials have been received from numerous members of the aristocracy and may be examined at the office by any bona fide inquirer. Is it really good? I invented it, said Wilford, simply. She looked at him adoringly. How clever you are! Any girl ought to be proud to marry you. Oh, well, said Wilford, with a modest wave of his hand. All the same, my guardian is going to be terribly angry when I tell him we're engaged. Why? I inherited the Purdue millions when my uncle died, you see, and my guardian has always wanted me to marry his son, Percy. Wilford kissed her fondly and laughed a defiant laugh. Germain fiche de Sarlar, he said lightly. But some days after his return to London, whither the girl had preceded him, he had occasion to recall her words. As he sat in his study, musing on a preparation to cure the pip in Canaries, a card was brought to him. Sir Jasper Fenfarmer Bart, he read. The name was strange to him. Show the gentleman in, he said, and presently there entered a very stout man with a broad pink face. It was a face whose natural expression should, Wilford felt, have been jovial, but at the moment it was grave. Sir Jasper Finchferomir, said Wilford. Finchferomir, corrected the visitor, his sensitive ear detecting the capitals. Ah, uh, yes, you spell it with two small f's, four small f's. And to what do I owe the honor? I am Angela Perdue's guardian. How do you do? Whiskey and soda? I thank you. No, I am a total abstainer. I found that alcohol had a tendency to increase my weight, so I gave it up. I have also given up butter, potatoes, soups of all kinds, and, however, he broke off, the fanatic gleam which comes into the eyes of all fat men 
who are describing their system of diet fading away. This is not a social call, and I must not take up your time with idle talk. I have a message from you, Mr. Molliner, from Angela. Bless her, said Wilfred. Sir Jasper, I love that girl with a fervor which increases daily. Is that so? said the baronet. Well, what I came to say was, it's all off. What? All off. She sent me to say that she had thought it over and wanted to break the engagement. Wilfred's eyes narrowed. He had not forgotten what Angela had said about this man wanting to marry his son. He gazed piercingly at his visitor, no longer deceived by the superficial geniality of his appearance. He had read too many detective stories where the fat, jolly, red-faced man turns out a fiend in human shape to be a ready victim to appearances. Indeed, he said coldly. I should prefer to have this information from Miss Perdue's own lips. She won't see you, but anticipating this attitude on your part, I brought a letter from her. You recognize the writing? Wilfred took the letter. Certainly the hand was Angela's, and the meaning of the words he read, unmistakable. Nevertheless, as he handed the missive back, there was a hard smile on his face. There is such a thing as writing a letter under compulsion, he said. The baronet's pink face turned mauve. What do you mean, sir? What I say. Are you insinuating? Yes, I am. Pooh, sir. Pooh to you said Wilfred, and if you want to know what I think, you poor fish, I believe your name is spelled with a capital F, like everybody else's. Stung to the quick, the baronet turned on his heel and left the room without another word. Although he had given up his life to chemical research, Wilfred Mulliner was no mere dreamer. He could be the man of action when necessity demanded. Scarcely had his visitor left when he was on his way to the senior test tubes, the famous chemist's club in St. James's. There, consulting Kelly's county families, he learnt that Sir Jasper's address was Finch Hall in Yorkshire. He found out all he wanted to know. It was at Finch Hall, he decided, that Angela must now be immured. For that she was being immured somewhere, he had no doubt. That letter, he was positive, had been written by her under stress of threats. The writing was Angela's, but he declined to believe that she was responsible for the phraseology and sentiment. He remembered a story where the heroine was forced into courses which she otherwise would not have contemplated by the fact that somebody was standing over her with a flask of vitriol. Possibly this was what that bounder of a baronet had done to Angela. Considering this possibility, he did not blame her for what she had said about him, Wilfred, in the second paragraph of her note. Nor did he reproach her for signing herself, Yours truly, A. Perdue. Naturally, when baronets are threatening to pour vitriol down her neck, a refined and sensitive young girl cannot pick her words. This sort of thing must of necessity interfere with the selection of the mot juste. Well, that afternoon, Wilfred was in a train on his way to Yorkshire. That evening he was in the Finch Arms in the village of which Jasper was a squire. That night he was in the gardens of Finch Hall, prowling softly around the house, listening. And presently, as he prowled, 
there came to his ears from an upper window a sound that made him stiffen like a statue and clench his hands till the knuckles stood out white under the strain. It was the sound of a woman sobbing. Wilfred spent a sleepless night, but by morning he had formed his plan of action. I will not weary you with the description of the slow and tedious steps by which he first made the acquaintance of Sir Jasper's valet, who was an habitué of the village inn, and then by careful stages won the man's confidence with friendly words and beer. Suffice it to say that about a week later, Wilfred had induced this man with bribes to suddenly leave the plea of an aunt's illness, supplying, so as to cause his employer no inconvenience, a cousin to take his place. This cousin, as you will have guessed, was Wilfred himself, but a very different Wilfred from the dark-haired, clean-cut young scientist who had revolutionized the world of chemistry a few months before by proving that H2O plus B3G4Z7 minus M9Z8 equals G65P3X. Before leaving London on what he knew would be a dark and dangerous enterprise, Wilford had taken the precaution of calling in at a well-known costumier's and buying a red wig. He had also purchased a pair of blue spectacles, but for the role which he had now undertaken, these were, of course, useless. A blue spectacle valet could not but have aroused suspicion in the most guileless baronet. All that Wilford did, therefore, in the way of preparation was to don the wig, shave off his mustache, and treat his face to a light coating of the Raven Gypsy face cream. This done, he set out for Finch Hall. Externally, Finch Hall was one of those gloomy, somber country houses which seemed to exist only for the purpose of having horrid crimes committed in them. Even in his brief visit to the grounds, Wilford had noticed fully half a dozen places which seemed incomplete without a cross indicating spot where body was found by police. It was the sort of house where ravens croak in the front garden just before the death of the heir and shrieks ring out from behind barred windows in the night. Nor was its interior more cheerful, and as for the personnel of the domestic staff, that was less exhilarating than anything else about the place. It consisted of an aged cook who, as she bent over her cauldrons, looked like something out of a traveling company of Macbeth, touring the smaller towns of the north, and Murgatroyd, the butler, a huge, sinister man with a cast in one eye and an evil light in the other. Many men under these conditions would have been daunted, but not Wilfred Mulliner. Apart from the fact that, like all Mulliners, he was as brave as a lion, he had come expecting something of this nature. He settled down to his duties and kept his eyes open, and before long his vigilance was rewarded. One day, as he lurked about the dim-lit passageways, he saw Sir Jasper coming up the stairs with a laden tray in his hands. It contained a toast rack, a half-bought of white wine, pepper, salt, veg, and in a covered dish, uh, something which Wilford, sniffing cautiously, decided was a cutlet. Lurking in the shadows, he followed the baronet to the top of the house. Sir Jasper paused at a door on the second floor. He knocked. The door opened, a hand was stretched forth, the tray vanished, 
The door closed and the baronet moved away. So did Wilford. He'd seen what he wanted to see, discovered what he wanted to discover. He returned to the servants' hall and under the gloomy eyes of Murgatroyd began to shape his plans. Where have you been? demanded the butler suspiciously. Oh, hither and thither, said Wilford, with a well-assumed airiness. Murgatroyd directed a menacing glance at him. You'd better stay where you belong, he said in his thick, growling voice. There's things in this house that don't want seeing. Ah, agreed the cook, dropping an onion in the cauldron. Wilford could not repress a shudder, but even as he shuddered, he was conscious of a certain relief. At least, he reflected, they were not starving his darling. That cutlet had smelt uncommonly good, and if the bill of fare was always maintained at this level, she had nothing to complain of in the catering. But his relief was short-lived. What, after all, he asked himself, are cutlets to a girl who is imprisoned in a locked room of a sinister country house and is being forced to marry a man she does not love? Practically nothing. When the heart is sick, cutlets merely alleviate. They do not cure. Fiercely, Wilford told himself that come what might, few days should pass before he found the key to that locked door and bore away his love to freedom and happiness. The only obstacle in the way of the scheme was that it was plainly going to be a matter of the greatest difficulty to find the key. That night, when his employer dined, Wilford searched his room thoroughly. He found nothing. The key, he was forced to conclude, was kept on the baronet's person. Then how to secure it? It is not too much to say that Wilfred Mulliner was nonplussed. The brain which had electrified the world of science by discovering that if you mixed a stiffish oxygen and potassium and added a splash of trinitrolio and a spot of old brandy, you got something that could be sold in America as champagne at $150 the case had to confess itself baffled. To attempt to analyze the young man's emotions, as the next week dragged itself by, would be merely morbid. Life cannot, of course, be all sunshine, and in relating a story like this, which is a slice of life, one must pay as much attention to shade as to light. Nevertheless, it would be tedious were I to describe to you in detail the soul torments which afflicted Wilfred Bolliner as day followed day and no solution to the problem presented itself. You are all intelligent men, and you can picture to yourselves how a high-spirited young fellow, deeply in love, must have felt, knowing that the girl he loved was languishing in what was practically amounted to a dungeon, though situated on an upper floor, and chafing at his inability to set her free. His eyes became sunken. His cheekbones stood out. He lost weight. And so noticeable was his change in physique that Sir Jasper finch commented on it one evening in tones of unconcealed envy. How the devil, Straker, he said, for this was the pseudonym under which Wilford was passing, do you manage to keep so thin? Judging from the weekly books, you eat like a starving Eskimo, and yet you don't put on weight. Now I, in addition to knocking off butter and potatoes, have started drinking hot, unsweetened lemon juice each night before retiring. And yet, damn, he said, 
for, like all baronets, he was careless in his language. I weighed myself this morning, and I was up another six ounces. What's the explanation? Yes, Sir Jasper, said Wilford mechanically. What do you mean, yes, Sir Jasper? No, Sir Jasper. The baronet wheezed plaintively. I've been studying this matter closely, and it's one of the seven wonders of the world. Have you ever seen a fat valet? Of course not. Nor has anyone else. There is no such thing as a fat valet. And yet there is scarcely a moment during the day when a valet is not eating. He rises at 6.30, and at 7 he's having coffee and buttered toast. At 8 he breakfasts off porridge, cream, eggs, bacon, jam, bread, butter, more eggs, more bacon, more jam, more tea, and more butter, finishing up with a slice of cold ham and a sardine. At 11 o'clock he has his elevenses, consisting of coffee, cream, more bread, and more butter. At one, luncheon, a hearty meal replete with every form of starchy food and lots of beer. If he can get at the port, he has port. At three, a snack. At four, another snack. At five, tea and buttered toast. At seven, dinner, probably with floury potatoes and certainly with lots more beer. At nine, another snack. At 10.30, he retires to bed, taking with him a glass of milk and a plate of biscuits to keep himself from getting hungry in the night. And yet he remains as slender as a string bean, while I, who have been dieting for years, tip the beam at 217 pounds, and am growing a third and supplementary chin. These are mysteries, Straker. Yes, Sir Jasper. Well, I'll tell you one thing, said the baronet. I'm getting down one of those Turkish bath cabinet affairs from London. If that doesn't do the trick, I give up the struggle. The indoor Turkish bath duly arrived and was unpacked. And it was some three nights later that Wilfred, brooding in the servants' hall, was aroused from his reverie by Murgatroyd. Here, wake up. Sir Jasper's calling you. Calling me what? asked Wilfred coming to himself with a start. "'Calling you very loud,' growled the butler. It was indeed so. From the upper regions of the house there was proceeding a series of sharp yelps, evidently those of a man in mortal stress. Wilfred was reluctant to interfere in any way, if, as seemed probable, his employer was dying in agony. But he was a conscientious man, and it was his duty, while in this sinister house, to perform the work for which he was paid. He hurried up the stairs, and, entering Sir Jasper's bedroom, perceived the baronet's crimson face protruding from the top of the indoor Turkish bath. "'So you've come at last!' cried Sir Jasper. "'Look here! When you put me into this infernal contrivance just now, what did you do to the dashed thing?' "'Nothing beyond what was indicated in the printed pamphlet accompanying the machine, Sir Jasper. Following the instructions, I slid rod A into groove B, fastening with catch C. Well, you must have made a mess of it somehow. The thing's stuck. I can't get out. You can't, cried Wilfred. No. And the ballet apparatus is getting considerably hotter than the hinges of the inferno. I must apologize for Sir Jasper's language, but you know what baronets are. I'm being cooked to a crisp. A sudden flash of light seemed to blaze upon Wilfred Molliner. I will release you, Sir Jasper, 
Well, hurry up, then. On one condition, Wilfred fixed him with a piercing gaze. First, I must have the key. There isn't a key, you idiot. It doesn't lock. It just clicks when you slide gadget D into thing gummy Bob E. The key I require is that of the room in which you are holding Angela Perdue a prisoner. What the devil do you mean? Ouch! I will tell you what I mean, Sir Jasper Finchfair Amir. I am Wilfred Mulliner. Don't be an ass. Wilfred Mulliner has black hair. Yours is red. You must be thinking of someone else. This is a wig, said Wilfred, by Clarkson. He shook a menacing finger at the baronet. You little thought, Sir Jasper Finch Farrimore, when you embarked on this dastardly scheme, that Wilfred Molliner was watching your every move. I guessed your plans from the start. And now is the moment when I must checkmate them. Give me that key, you fiend. F fiend, corrected Sir Jasper automatically. I'm going to release my darling to take her away from this dreadful house, to marry her by special license as soon as it can legally be done. In spite of his sufferings, a ghastly laugh escaped Sir Jasper's lips. You are, are you? I am. Yes, you are. Give me the key. I haven't got it, you chump. It's in the door. Ha ha. It's no good saying, ha ha, it is in the door on Angela's side of the door. A likely story, but I cannot stay here wasting time. If you do not give me the key, I shall go up and break in the door. Once more, the baronet laughed like a tortured soul. And see what you'll say. Wilfred could make nothing of this last remark. He could, he thought, imagine very clearly what Angela would say. He could picture her sobbing on his chest, murmuring that, he, she knew he would come, that she had not doubted him for an instant. He leapt for the door. Here, hi, aren't you going to let me out? Presently, said Wilfred. Keep cool. He raced up the stairs. Angela, he cried, pressing his lips against the panel. Angela, who's that? Answered a well-remembered voice from within. It is I, Wilfred. I'm going to burst open the door. Stand clear of the gates. He drew back a few paces and hurled himself at the woodwork. There was a grinding crash as the lock gave, and Wilfred, staggering on, found himself in a room so dark that he could see nothing. Angela, where are you? I'm here, and I'd like to know why you are after that letter I wrote you. Some men, continued the strangely cold face, do not seem to know how to take a hint. Wilfred staggered and would have fallen had he not clutched at his forehead. That letter? he stammered. You surely didn't mean what you wrote in that letter. I meant every word, and I wish I had put in more. But, but, but don't you love me, Angela? A hard, mocking laugh rang through the room. Love you? Love the man who recommended me to try Mulliner's Raven Gypsy Face Cream? What do you mean? I'll tell you what I mean. Wilfred Mulliner, look on your handiwork. The room suddenly became flooded with light. And there, standing with her hand on the switch, stood Angela. A queenly, lovely figure, 
in whose radiant beauty the sternest critic would have noted but one flaw, the fact that she was piebald. Wilfred gazed at her with adoring eyes. Her face was partly brown and partly white, and on her snowy neck were patches of sepia that looked like the thumbprint she find on the pages of books in the free library. But he thought her the most beautiful creature he had ever seen. He longed to fold her in his arms, and but for the fact that her eyes told him that she would undoubtedly land an uppercut on him if he tried it, he would have done so. Yes, she went on, this is what you made of me, Wilfred Molyneux, you and that awful stuff you call the Raven Gypsy face cream. This is the skin you love to touch. I took your advice and bought one of the large jars at seven and six and see the result. Barely 24 hours after the first application, I could have walked into any circus and named my own terms as the spotted princess of the Fiji Islands. I fled here to my childhood home to hide myself, and the first thing that happened, her voice broke, was that my favorite hunter shied at me and tried to bite pieces out his manger, while Ponto, my little dog whom I have reared from a puppy, caught one side of my face and is now in the hands of the vet and unlikely to recover. And it was you, Wilfred Mulliner, who brought this curse upon me. Many men would have wilted beneath these searing words, but Wilfred Mulliner merely smiled with infinite compassion and understanding. It is quite all right, he said. I should have warned you, sweetheart, that this occasionally happens in cases where the skin is exceptionally delicate and finely textured. It can be speedily remedied, by an application of the Mulliner Snow of the Mountains lotion, four shillings the medium-sized bottle. Wilfred, is this true? Perfectly true, dearest. And is this all that stands between us? No, shouted a voice of thunder. Wilfred wheeled sharply. In the doorway stood Sir Jasper Finchfaramir. He was swathed in a bath towel, what was visible of his person being a bright crimson. Behind him, toying with a horsewhip, stood Murgatroyd, the butler. You didn't expect to see me, did you? I certainly, Wilford replied severely, did not expect to see you in a lady's presence in a costume like that. Never mind my costume, Sir Jasper turned. Murgatroyd, do your duty. The butler, scowling horribly, advanced into the room. Stop, screamed Angela. I haven't yet begun, miss, said the butler, deferentially. You shan't touch Wilford. I love him. What? cried Sir Jasper. After what has happened? Yes, he has explained everything. A grim frown appeared on the baronet's vermilion face. I'll bet he hasn't explained why he left me to be cooked in that infernal Turkish bath. I was beginning to throw out clouds of smoke when Murgatroyd, faithful fellow, heard my cries, and came and released me. Though not my work, added the butler. Wilfred eyed him steadily. If, he said, you used Mulliner's Reduso, the recognized specific for obesity, whether in the tabloid form at three shillings a ten or as a liquid at five and six the flask, you would have no need to stew in Turkish baths. Mulliner's Reduso, which contains no injurious chemicals, but is compounded purely of health-giving herbs, is guaranteed to remove excess weight, 
steadily and without weakening after-effects, at the rate of two pounds a week, as used by the nobility. The glare of hatred faded from the baronet's eyes. Is that a fact? he whispered. It is. You guarantee it? All the Moliner preparations are fully guaranteed. My boy, cried the baronet. He shook Wolford by the hand. Take her, he said brokenly, and with my blessing. A discreet cough sounded in the background. You haven't anything by any chance, sir, asked Murgatroyd. That's good for lumbago? Moliner's Isa will cure the most stubborn case in six days. Bless you, sir, bless you, sobbed Murgatroyd. Where can I get it? At all chemists. It catches me in the small of the back principally, sir. It need catch you no longer, said Wilford. There is little to add. Murgatroyd is now the most lissom butler in Yorkshire. Sir Jasper's weight is down under fifteen spoon, and he is thinking of taking up hunting again. Wilford and Angela are man and wife, and never, I am informed, had the wedding bells of the old church at Finch Village rung out a blither peal than they did on that June morning when Angela, raising to her love a face on which the brown was as evenly distributed as on an antique walnut table, replied to the clergyman's question, Wilt thou, Angela, take this Wilfred? With a shy, I will. They now have two bonny bairns, the small, or Percival, at a preparatory school in Sussex, and the large, Ferdinand, at Eton. Here, Mr. Mulliner, having finished his hot scotch, bade us farewell and took his departure. A silence followed his exit. The company seemed plunged in deep thought. Then somebody rose. Well, good night, all, he said. It seemed to sum up the situation. End of section two.